This is Dr. James Crosby, Head of Sustainability at Advantage Utilities. I'd like to ask, could your organisation be more of an energy sector hero? Are you interested in improving your sustainability as a business? Well, now you can obtain the expert view and guidance on renewable energy solutions, on-site generation, carbon accounting, and sophisticated grid energy purchasing options through Advantage Utilities. Our team of experts use the latest tools to better analyse, track and reduce your organisation's energy usage and carbon emissions. To find out how Advantage Utilities can become your one-stop shop for all your energy and sustainability needs, please visit www.advantageutilities.com or give one of our passionate and friendly team a call on 0208-131-4747. Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week I am joined by Christian Retech. Christian is an incredible Chief Revenue Officer with a mission to bring artificial intelligence and machine learning to the masses. Christian, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yes. Good morning, afternoon, and evening for your listeners, whatever time zone they're in. Uh, Christian Reddick here, former Chief Revenue Officer at Flutura. We actually just exited the company. It's a nine-figure exit to a company called Accenture. Very exciting stuff. Several years at play here. I have a background in computer science and physics, so a little bit unusual. It's not chemical engineering. It's not oil and gas. And I happened to fall into the oil and gas industry when I, I started my consultancy helping heavy industry achieve successful go-to-market strategies. And so my background has been largely in bringing digital twins to market across different industries, construction, education, and so to the point of career, you know, talking down to the educational level is going to be a very interesting conversation and landed in industrial AI after uh, aerospace and defense. Okay. So how did you, you say that you got into the energy sector by accident. How did that accident happen? <laughs> so I left a cushy corporate job working in construction. Where I was selling general contractor services for uh, large skyscrapers and buildings And a friend of mine was the chief operating officer for a combustor company. So solving some of the emission problems on well pads, instead of using flares, you'd use these zero emission combustors. And I fell in love with the industry. I fell in love with the industry for a few reasons. One, I didn't know that I loved it, but I love process engineering. It's the way everything sequences, the way that everything is about optimization and process engineering. I found that very beautiful. And I also... I think back to a a quote by Steve Jobs, where he said, you know, once you understand that everything around you, everything you see was created by someone else who's not much smarter than you, it'll change your world. And so I really started to have a newfound appreciation for how raw materials get crafted through process engineering into their final products that we all take tremendously for granted in our world today. Okay, that sounds amazing. So... Did you have any role models when you, during your career and why did you find them inspirational? It's a great question. 
I mean, my role models are sitting on all the books I've got back here, but I would say anyone who's done something great, you know, your Steve Jobs, your Warren Buffett's, your Charlie Munger's, those gentlemen who are, are doing things at a very large scale, uh, Chet Holmes, who was the gentleman who built a lot of the, the sales and go-to market strategies for Mr. Munger and Mr. Buffett's companies. Those were my heroes, right? People like Robert Greene, for example, was a big hero of mine. He wrote The 48 Laws of Power, Laws of Human Nature. Uh, I realize now, looking backwards, a lot of my heroes were in the world of influence and persuasion. Okay. So... You were, um, as we were discussing previously, a chief revenue officer. How did you get into that? Because that is not really a common, well, especially for someone in the UK, it's not really a common type of role that I've heard of. No, certainly not. Software as a service industry is where I, where I cut my teeth as an introductory sales guy. You know, 10 years ago, I was I joined a telecommunications company that was software as a service, and they were serving big enterprise. And I remember getting there and there was only one person on our team who was our, our business development manager. So I got out of software development, also did some software development in the oil and gas industry, funny enough. And they had basically shelved me into a kitchen. This small company that was doing asset performance management was looking to track some of their assets on the oil field, telecommunications assets specifically. You know, The frost would end and they would roll out all their equipment and set everything up in these offshore locations. They made me hate software development. But that was largely because I was in a, in a vacuum by myself and I decided, you know, I've got the technical chops. I wanted to start my own company. I ended up getting in front of a group of investors for an energy drink company, funny enough, right after I'd left software development. And they said, you need to go pitch for a lot of funding, right? Like I can see you getting a couple million dollars from our group, but you're going to need 25, $30 million for this vision you've set. And that involves going to pitch competitions, that involves meeting with venture capital firms. I was terrified, terrified. I was like, man, I'm a, I'm a software designer. This, this isn't my, my wheelhouse. And right after that, I remember waking up the next morning after I had basically abandoned my dream because of this big thing that scared me. And Amazon back then had introduced this software called Audible, audiobooks. It's like one of the first things that came out. There was a book up here, actually. It's called Pitch Anything by a gentleman named Oren Claff. And that's when I said, you know what? I'm going to get really good at this pitching thing. I'm going to get really good at presenting ideas to people, simplifying those ideas in such a way that they can understand how those ideas are going to impact their business. And more importantly, how to get people to part with their money. Is and that... after... Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say to you that... Pitching for a, a couple of million pounds or a million dollars even is a huge thing. It's a huge thing. How, how would you even go about doing that? I don't think I would be able to do that, actually. I don't, don't sell yourself short. At, at, the, at the center of all of it is empathy. Empathy. And so, I mean, if you have to pitch for millions of dollars, here's how you do it. You really have to understand the motivations and what the folks that are on the opposite end of that table care about. And I don't mean, you know, you look at their LinkedIn profile and you see a, a couple of things that they've done historically in their past. Oh, no. I want you to think of how the FBI goes after their suspects, right? They'll go look at every possible thing. They will walk into the buildings where these people work. They will try everything to get information on these people. And so beneath all, like, it's almost like being a professional athlete. 
right? It's the thousands of hours of being in the gym that people don't see. It's the failed practices. It's the falling on your face. It's the the book reading. It's the recovery. All for that one, you know, maybe five to 10 minute race that you're going to conduct in the Olympics. That's how I see pitching. And so we fall to the highest level of preparation. Everything in pitching is preparation. Okay. So it doesn't take a, it must take a lot of work and preparation to pitch for, for five minutes then. It depends on who's on the other end of the table. It depends on how much, how, how publicly available and how, you know, forthcoming those people are in their, their publicly available materials, their brand. You know, nowadays, a lot of these folks will leave clues on their Twitter accounts. A lot of these folks will leave clues on their LinkedIn accounts. If you just Google someone's name, for example, right? You go maybe 10 pages deep on Google. You will probably find every single thing you need to about that person. Enough that you can develop a sense of empathy with them. Okay. So doing your research on your, on who you're going to be meeting with is quite crucial then. Incredibly. Think of it like a first date. Think of it like a first date, right? We're all, all of our first dates are perfect, right? We're the best versions of ourselves. Hopefully, you know, we wear our, our, our perfumes, our colognes, we iron our trousers and our shirts. We're in our absolute best behavior the moment that we're in front of that other person, hopefully, because you want to set a good uh, impression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that is very true, actually. Yeah. So what made you leave software to go into the oil and gas industry? And do you think that your, your experience in software has helped, helped you in your career? Because, you know, AI is all about now. In the, in, in the industry. Software is quite, especially with cybersecurity and all the latest technology is all over the oil industry, in any industry, in fact. So do you think it's helped you, any? I would say it, it was one of the biggest helpers for me, period, with what I'm doing today. Because when, when I come to a company, my job is to commercialize whatever that software solution looks like. And since I've chosen oil and gas and energy as the industry that I'm choosing to serve and help, you know, solve some of the energy and security problems through software, you have to understand things at the bits and bytes level. And so having a background of being able to understand how someone had built that software, understand the skeleton of the software, the intention of the different functions that they have within that software, what those ramifications are going to be at a field level have been incredibly important for me to be able to have successful conversations to build these enterprise solutions. Because you're working for Total, for example, mm. and getting, getting a solution in front of Total, you, you have a couple of different paths. You either get really lucky and you take a single shot at the innovations or the digital innovations folks, the analytics folks, and they'll put you into an evaluation process. Or if you want to elicit a true enterprise level valuation process and maybe spark one, for example, like we've done with some oil and gas companies with uh, Futura, you would have to go down to the field level and talk to the guys that are dealing with the equipment day in and day out. And this is something most executives aren't doing today because there's such an abstraction and there are so many silos between those departments and these organizations. And so you're sitting there collecting information to make the lives better of each of the individual people on that oil field. So sometimes I might call 10 different engineers before I go take a solution up to an executive and say, hey, take a look at this. I think it provides some tremendous value for you. And to answer your question about how I got into, got into or how, why I left software, I did a brief stint at Google straight out of school. And I was working on a project we all talk to today when we go, hey, Google. And in that room were about six other gentlemen. And I never spoke to these six gentlemen for 
several months that I was there. I was shy. I was inexperienced. It was my first job out of school. I had gotten into the big league straight out of school and I was terrified of making a mistake. And only when I left Google to come to the, the company in the oil field that I talked about where I was developing the asset management solution, did I notice one day as I was clearing out my old textbooks from my bookshelf that two of the writers of those textbooks were the gentlemen that were sitting in that room with me at Google that I never talked to. And it was in that moment that I knew like, I, I am not a software developer. I was among some of the greatest in the world at Google and I really sucked at what I was doing. <laughs> I wouldn't have a passion for it. I would work my nine to five. And then while the rest of these folks were sitting at home working on their personal projects, you know, little things they could do to optimize their houses. One of them was uh, developing a sensor that could measure the, the moisture in his plants so he could you know, do things like this. I was out interacting with people. I was out partying because it was university time, right? I lived in a university town. And so, you know, you connect the dots moving backward. I was sitting there approaching strangers in, in bars, basically, to try to talk to them and make some friends where these guys were working on projects. And so it's kind of a microcosm of where my life ended up. I can't believe you work for Google. That is just mind-blowing for me, actually. Do you ever regret leaving Google then? No. No, I don't. I live my life with very, very little, little regrets. In fact, if somebody asked me if I have any regrets, uh, there's like one <laughs> and it's relatively recent. I don't regret leaving Google. I think it's a, a phenomenal company. I think if, if you can get in the door at Google, hats off to anybody who can get in there. Their interview process is, is intended to weed out incapable people. I was very, very fortunate that I could talk my way through that process, even though I was incapable. I don't think you were incapable if you were able to be able to land a job in, in, in Google. I don't think so. Because it must be a hard process, actually. Again, guardian angel on this one. I don't often talk about this, but where most other people had like a five or six interview process, I was able to get six of the right people in the room and have a one hour interview with them. And because I controlled the, the flow of information and in interview, this is something we talk about a lot in sales is controlling the flow of the conversation. Right. And you understand this as a podcaster. The person who's asking the questions is the person that is in a position of power in the conversation. And so for new graduates, right, if we're trying to offer some advice to folks that are, are just starting their careers, one of the best things you can do to, to shine miles above all of your competition when you're going to apply for new roles is control the flow of the conversation. And it's often a scary thing to do. And hiring managers do not expect this. They expect you to get in line like a good little sheep and go through the process. But if you're able to flip the script on them respectfully, of course, this isn't, you're not doing anything manipulatory here. You're trying to help them and serve them. If you are the one asking the majority of questions and you're essentially qualifying the company, you automatically get put into a, I guess, a higher status position in that conversation, which will elevate you miles above all of the other candidates because it demonstrates a tremendous amount of EQ. Okay, so how would you go about controlling the, the information that you give then? How do you mean by that? Well, so I'll give you an example. You walk into an interview, usually they start asking you questions, right? Yeah. Tell me about yourself. Hey, I'm, I'm happy to tell you about myself. Before I do, would you mind if I asked a few questions of my own just to make sure that we're a good fit for each other? I don't want to waste any of your time. This is what I'm looking for. I'd never do that. I have never. And then you turn, 
And then you turn it, here's what happens. This is what I'm looking for in a position. This is what I'm looking for for my future. I'm going to put my very best into whatever company I work for. I hope that would be you folks, but we'll only find out after this conversation. Would you mind if I asked a few questions myself before we got started? Okay. But I guarantee you that has that has not happened to 99.9% of the hiring managers, but I will also tell you I haven't had a job interview in 10 years. Wow. I haven't needed to. Wow. That takes some uh yeah, that would take a lot of bravery to do that though. But a new graduate would. We we get one shot at life. One shot. And if you do it right once is enough. But I find a lot of people are are in one of the most disempowering positions in life right out the gate when they graduate. And that position is a position of waiting, okay. waiting for them to call me back, waiting for them to look at my resume, waiting. The more proactive you are, the more you will stand miles above everybody else who is applying for those jobs. No, I do agree with that. I think if you, that if you're applying, if you're a new graduate and you're applying for one job, even if it's, even if you think it's your new, it's your dream company, I think you should keep applying. You might end up in a better situation than you thought that you might have been with your dream company. Absolutely, or talk to different people within that company. Yeah, I never thought about who, that. Who may, not, who, may, who may not directly be the hiring managers. Maybe you just find the phone number of somebody who is in a similar position to you or you connect with them on LinkedIn and you say, hey, I'm potentially looking at applying for your company. I'd like to understand what your day-to-day -day life actually looks like before I consider. Do you have 15 minutes for me? Can I buy you coffee? Can I buy you lunch? Most people aren't doing that. No, a lot of graduates aren't doing that. And I speak to quite a few graduates and a lot of them aren't doing that. They're just sending maybe their CV one of the advices that I try to encourage them to, you know, contact some people directly on LinkedIn to try and, you know, engage with them as well. So have you got any other advice how to land your dream job? It depends on the level of, of courage or bravado the individuals have, but I'll tell you this much. You land where you sound like. So if if you work on your public speaking skills, you can go to free events like Toastmasters has, is worldwide. So there's, there's no cost for you to attend Toastmasters. If you want to be part of the group, you want to engage in the, in the, uh, the competitions, the, the events that those folks have. Yeah, there's a cost to be part of the team. But, you know, you go to a Toastmasters event, you see everyone from your 90-year-old grandma to a 15-year-old kid at these events. And it's just an opportunity for you to cut your teeth in a low-risk environment public speaking. Now, why are we doing this? Well, we're doing this because nowadays there are very easy ways to get the phone numbers of hiring managers and nothing to preclude you from calling the hiring manager and saying, hey, I see that you're hiring for this role. Is it safe to assume you're growing that team? They'll go through their little spiel with you. Say, hey, I don't want to go through the traditional hiring process because I know I'm going to get put through an AI or some kind of machine that's going to look at keywords on my interview or sorry, on my resume. And you know, as well as I do, you've hired people without seeing their resumes before. I think everyone has hired somebody without seeing their resumes before. That's a formality. So I think HR teams are going to hate me right now, but I would say circumvent HR and go straight to the hiring manager wherever possible. I'll give you a little story. There is a gentleman here that's working for one of the largest Canadian oil and gas companies called TC Energy. He's a C-level executive. 
He's also very well known for attending particular charities. So you can catch this man feeding soup to the homeless every Saturday. I'm not going to tell you who it is, but if you're looking for TC Energy, it's a CXO of theirs. There's only a couple. What's to preclude you from going to feed soup to the homeless and striking up a conversation with him while you're there? Okay. But a lot of people might not even think about doing that, though. A lot of those people won't get the jobs at TC Energy. Do you think it's important to think outside the box to get ahead and the job that you're wanting to do rather than just sending in your CV? A hundred percent. If you're sending in your CV, it's the equivalent of getting in line at the grocery store. You are going to be processed. Human beings weren't meant to be processed. Human beings have so many unique traits to their personalities that need to be properly evaluated, but the hiring methodologies that we have in place today, they're ineffective. There's reasons why most of these oil and gas companies have greater than 40% turnover rates. Okay. There's reasons why they outsource their consultants instead of hiring for these roles. Yeah, there is quite a lot of consultants in the oil and gas industry, just not well, have been for a while, actually. Consultants are lower risk than full-time hires. You think so? Why do you think that? So generally speaking, and this is a generalization, I don't know what it's like in every country, but I can speak to the US and Canada. When a CFO is looking at putting together a hiring package, there is a 30% premium on top of that salary. And that 30% premium is for things like vacation time, severance, missed days of work, insurance, and so forth, and all the other additional costs that go with having an employee, the perks. And so why would I take on that additional 30% risk when I can get a consultant who's expected to show up and throw up immediately and have the expertise, doesn't necessarily require a ramp up time because it's their responsibility to ramp themselves up. And they're expected to produce. I mean, this is just good economics. And that 30% number is something most people don't even know exists. That's your employment premium. Yeah, no, I think a lot of people don't know that the 30% exists now. But I do agree with you that contractors are meant to be hired to perform right away. I would think so. Much harder to be a contractor than it is to be an employee. And I think this this is a tricky conversation because I don't necessarily want to alienate or polarize anybody, but I will say this much. The future of work is a combination of two things. It's proof and play. And what do I mean by that? If your resume doesn't have articles of proof, things that you've done, tangible, demonstrable results, just has tasks, you're moving to the bottom of the pile. The resumes that are going to shine are the ones that say, I was able to generate this much of a percent improvement on this particular process. One of the best things I ever did before I got into uh, what I do today was every role I would have, because my first few sales jobs were employed, right? Now people come to me and they say, hey, I need your help doing this thing. I tracked my performance like a mad scientist. Every day I would know how how much better I performed or worse I performed than the previous day. Even if it's just how quickly did you get this done versus what management expected. So when management says, hey, I want this thing done, Your next question is, when do you want it done by? Management says, I want it done by this time. You write that down, that's your 100. Your goal is to beat that number every time. Start treating everything as an article of proof. Start treating it like you're building um, 
Like you're building a character in a video game and that character has attributes and you may work 10% or 15% faster or better than your peers. That's a tangible, demonstrable result. That's how you tell stories when they ask you questions on interviews. Measurement. So how do you, how do you highlight your measurable achievements then? Even just on your CV? Because it is really hard. Because a lot of the CVs, it's really hard. It'd be hard to write out a CV because a lot of the CVs are just standard. How do you make your CV stand out? And how do you make yourself stand out? I take the, the path less traveled, obviously. <laughs> if everyone's going left, I'll go right. And so if everyone's lining up with HR, I go right to the hiring manager. That's one tactic we talked about. I will try to find the person who is responsible for building that department, who's the ultimate leadership, who's going to look at each of their their employees as productivity. I will map out that particular department. So if I'm targeting a CIO, for example, I'm going to see how many other people on LinkedIn are, are being managed by that CIO. I think a LinkedIn Navigator license is 120 Canadian, so maybe like 100 bucks USD, maybe like 80 to 90 euro, I think. And if you use Navigator, you can go into Navigator and type in the name of a company and you can start to develop an idea of what the hierarchy looks like. Already, if you know these five people are under the CIO, those five people are five people I'd recommend you have a conversation with and you ask them, hey, I've got, uh, here's the trick. <laughs> I'm giving away one of my like magic, magic bullets here. The word arranging, because it's not a dishonest word. Let me explain. Yeah. Hi, so-and-so. I'm arranging an interview with so-and-so people for this particular role. I was hoping that in advance of my interview, I could talk to you since it's possible that one day we might be on the same team. Bill me with you. Okay. Because and you're not being dishonest because you are arranging that interview. You just haven't succeeded yet. So that's one. Two, how do you make your CV stand out? My CV has literally, well, I haven't had one in a while, but now I'm a consultant. So it's all, this is what I've done. This is what I've done for this previous client. Here are the efficiencies. Here's the, the dollar values associated with them. There is not a single task on my resume. If there's a task on your resume, like I'm responsible for customer service. So is the chat bot. What makes you different than the chat bot when you say I'm responsible for customer service? Okay. Versus, versus led customer service team, reduced churn by 10%. Now, in order for you to understand what churn is, you've got to ask the question, first, what is churn, which is people leaving in software, it's people leaving, software subscribers leaving, which means the day that you get into that role, you start asking, what are the baseline metrics that are important for this role? How am I being measured in success in this role, specifically, tangibly? And this is often where people get get caught up on promotions is that they're sitting there trying to understand what more tasks they can do in order to get a promotion. You should be asking what baseline metrics can I improve for the business in order to get a promotion? Because that way, when you go to leadership and you're like, hey, I want a promotion, they're going, well, why should we give you a promotion? You're saying, well, I reduced your churn by 20%, which at an average customer value of 5,000, which you told me several months ago, is this much money in reduction. I saved you guys this much money. I'm only asking for a small 5% cut of that in a promotion so I can continue to deliver for you the same results and better next year. Okay. So when you go to ask for a promotion, you need to show clear, concise results that you've achieved for the, for the company then. 
Absolutely. Unless you have a competitive advantage in, you know, maybe your leadership really likes you. Maybe you guys are friends outside of work and you're a shoe in for the position. Everything in life is probabilities. I can't guarantee you that you're going to get a promotion when, you know, he's playing golf and going to have dinner with the family and you're not. That's a tough, that's a tough game. That is tough. And do you think that getting promotion through being friends with a boss is much better than through your own achievements? That is a very good question. I, I, I'm back to Shakespeare on this one. There is no good or bad. Only thinking makes it so. I think if you want to hedge your bets, this has been my philosophy. If you want to hedge your bets, it's really hard to argue with numbers. But this is the, the sales leader in me coming out. Everything in sales is about numbers. We're held to a number every day. We're the only ones that are asked to perform and deliver numbers, right? So if, if you want to err on the side of like maximizing the probability that you'll get that promotion or even better, <laughs> getting a, going to a different company and moving up the chain instead, because that's one of the fastest ways you can grow your career, hands down. Leave the company you're at, go to a new company, demonstrate the results for the previous company, improve upon them. You will go up and up and up and up. Sticking at the same company, I mean, the general, general promotions most folks can look at, especially today, inflation is, we're not going to get into how all these governments are calculating it and fudging the numbers, but let's assume using the S&P 500 in North America, a general growth of a company is around 9%. If you're beating a 9% growth year over year, you're beating the market, so to speak. But then why are we giving people between a three, well, one in some case, I've seen a 1% to 5% raise every year if you stay at the same company. That's absurd. So your company's growing at 9, 9% plus, but your employees are being compensated at a growth of one to 5%. And inflation's even higher than this. There has never been a time to be there has never been a time where it's been more advantageous to be a mercenary when it comes to your career than today. No one is going to look out for you. You've got to look out for yourself. And that's why these numbers, these numbers are things no one can take away from you. Now, if your boss who you're playing golf with happens to go somewhere else, happens to be terminated, happens to switch departments, then what? Well, a lot of people might think that they're hoping that the said boss might take them with them. History is uh, littered with people who saw hope as a prerequisite to failure. Hope is not a strategy. Hope has never been a strategy. So what would your advice be? Do you think it's better to, do you think it's easier to be promoted within the same company or to go outside a company and maybe change jobs? I can only speak to my experience. I, every time that I would hit a particular, you know, you know the whole idea go out on top. Yeah. Every time that I would achieve the metrics that I had set out for in that particular year, I would start immediately applying for different jobs that are a higher tier outside the company I was at. Mm -hmm. It's just easier. It's in sales. We have something called the, the out-of-town expert. Okay. And so if you're successful in one area, it's far easier for you to go to the next town and, and talk about the successes you've had previously to get a new client than it is for you to stay in the same town. Okay. Because who's going to be there to test any of the things that you say? Who's going to be able to go check the network and say, this person is 
you know, is or isn't what they claim they are. This is all hedging your bets. You're playing jump rope with the ethics line, but ethics are an interesting discussion today, especially with the way certain corporations are behaving. I mean, I think so too. I think that sometimes, even if you're mid-career, it could still be beneficial for you to move companies rather than stay in the same company for 10, 10, 15, 10 or more years anyway. Because you're not really going to be learning any. Well, you can learn things new, especially as an engineer. You can learn things new because technology is changing at a rapid pace. But sometimes it's not always the best thing to stay in the same place. My father's a career guy. And so this was always difficult for me growing up is because he's been at the same company for 30 years. Right. And he started at the bottom, pressing a button mm. on a machine as an operator. And he worked his way up to the, the corporate lead for maintenance. He's the guy. And even he and I have these conversations today. He's in his late fifties, early sixties, I think now. I'm constantly pushing. I'm like, dad, you could go out and be a consultant today and probably make way more money at a different company. They would value your expertise. You wouldn't have to deal with any of the challenges that you have within this company. And his response to me is always the same thing. Yeah, but then I have to go build up that clout and that influence again. So two sides to the same coin. My father went the route of grow within the same company, stay there forever. He's now tapped out. I went from company to company to company, which he used to chide me for all the time as a kid. He said I would never have a good career because of this. And I, I have far exceeded his capability set and where he is in life because of this. Corporations are intended, like this is something often not discussed either. The idea of a company, a company's fundamental reasoning for bringing employees on board is to absorb IP. How do you mean by that? They, they want what you have in your mind. And the moment they have what you have in your mind, they can scale that to the rest of the organization. And you're no longer necessary once they've extracted that IP from you. That is why they are paying you. And now with the introduction of AI into this game, AI is basically absorbing IP left, right, and center all across the internet. And so I, I don't know what the corporate and the company-based playbook is going to look like moving forward. But if I have an, an automaton that can do what you can do, and it costs me significantly less, why wouldn't I? Yeah, but there's and sec, the second of saying that, there is a lot of people that can say that they can do the same as what maybe someone else is doing, but they may be only think that they can, and they might only be able to achieve 50% of what you can do. And that's back to the game of probabilities, right? Yes. Yeah, so life is all about probabilities and trust. So, I mean, the, num the number one hack that anybody listening to this can implement in their lives in order to significantly bolster their career Become a student of influence. All relationships in this life are built on trust. And so if you can develop trust with people quickly and effectively, uh, by the way, it's assumed as I'm speaking about this, that you will deliver on the things that you're building trust about. Let's make that clear. I'm not suggesting everybody go out and be a narcissistic sociopath 
by any stretch of the imagination. I'm suggesting you go give value and service to your clients, to your company, to your peers, to your team members, and so forth. So with that being said, if you learn influence, even just read How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie, which is the most basic book that you start with when you start to learn influence, you'll be miles ahead of everyone else. Miles, because they're not doing this. They went through school and they went through a system that is intended still to this day. Let me step back. I sold a digital twin software to the United States Department of Education a few years back. And the purpose of this digital twin software was to monitor curriculum, assessment, and instruction at the same time. So here's what we're learning. Here's how we're assessing. Here's the specific teacher or educator that's educating this way to achieve competency towards that curriculum using this assessment. And so the education system is fundamentally designed to still to create good factory workers. However, when you get out of school, the playbook is no longer the good factory worker. We can no longer take care of our families with just one person working in a factory. Get, like, there's such a huge disconnect between the education system and, and what true employment actually looks like. Now, if somebody had gone in there, maybe their career counselor, and said, hey, your grades matter, your extracurriculars matter, these organizations will evaluate you against your peers based on how you perform here, I think we have a very different education system today. And furthermore, to the point of oil and gas, there's a reason why there are subsidies provided to schools that graduate a certain amount of white-collar workers instead of blue-collar workers. Why is that? Why is it that we have a dearth of blue-collar talent in our world today? Forgive me. Why is it that we have a dearth of blue-collar talent in our world today and we have way too many white-collar employees and producers? It's because the education system is designed currently and compensated to pump out white-collar workers, and so we're all competing for the same jobs. My prediction is blue-collar is going to be very, very well compensated in the next five to ten years once the hiring pool is full. And then you have all kinds of other propaganda against the oil and gas industry. That's also subsidized. At the end of the day, what this comes down to is money. Everything is about money. And that comes back to my tangibles. If your resume speaks, this person is going to make me money, that's the best resume you can have. Even if you just go by repetition and you don't really have a, an excellent... CV. I think your reputation about how you can maybe turn projects around, make the company money, save the company money, you're still going to be quids in. You're still going to get hired over everybody else. And maybe at a senior position as well. But it's just getting your work is proof. Yeah, but it's just getting that experience and defining how you can distinguish yourself from other people. It's back let's go full circle on this. So back to the point about like courage. Yeah. Typically, you know who's courageous? People that have already done something. And so if you learn how to put on courage, we all have to, well, to some extent, we've all done something where we faked it until we made it. Something in our lives. So if you learn how to fake courage, yeah, it might come off as incongruent the first few times that you have those job interviews. Mm -hmm. But the third time, you're going to get better. The fourth time, you're going to get better. The fifth time, you're going to get a job because that other person is going to look at you and say, this person exudes value. I'm not sure how, but this person is going to bring us value. I can feel it. 
there is still an element of feeling in the interview process. There are people who still hire within 30 minutes of meeting somebody. There are some people that still hire without even meeting that person. They just say, yeah, see your CV, just take, hire them right away without even interviewing them. That has to be commendable. So if you get to that point in your career. <laughs> the real self is, I have a belief, the real self is always shining through. And so whether or not you necessarily have the capability set to serve a particular role, I would say for those people that are seeing these roles and they're asking for like a tremendous amount of work experience, dollars to donuts, if you call the hiring manager, they won't ask. If you're communicating in a way that's high value, if you're communicating in a way that's influential, if you're communicating, communicating in a way that understands the emotional quotient, right? Emotional intelligence is so important, especially today when, to your point, a lot of CVs are just getting put through systems that are looking for keywords, that are looking for a couple of things. If, if the people listening to this could take one piece of advice, treat the HR department like an obstacle, like an obstacle, like a gate meant to keep out the people who are not proactive, who lack the emotional intelligence, because that's what it's there for. Go straight to the hiring manager. It's so easy to find today. And I'm not going to ask any more questions. I'm going to leave it there, actually, because that is nearly an hour. Well, that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Christian for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. Thank you, Michelle. I hope you got some value out of this. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.